millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. The greatest trick the devil ever pulled was convincing the world he didn't exist. Open the pod bay doors now. I'm sorry, Dan. I'm afraid I can't do that. What's the most you ever lost in the contest? Go ahead. Make my day. Welcome, everybody, to a brand new episode of Black Hole Cinema. And this is a very special episode today, as it's a Marvel cinematic special to coincide with the imminent release of X-Men Days of Future Past, a movie that has been forever, it seems, in the making. That is extremely exciting to anyone who's a fan of Marvel and the comics and the X-Men films. Two gentlemen of whom I am privileged to have with me discussing all things Marvel. Let me first introduce the DC guy, that is <laughs> Mr. Ian Austin. Hello, sir. Bonjour. <laughs> Bonjour. And uh, joining us is probably a confirmed Marvel guy in Mr. Tom East. Hello. Hello. And thanks a lot, gents, for coming on to the Black Hole. We thought we'd talk, as I say, about all things cinematically Marvel. And... To start off with, just a random question for both of you. What do you think is the best Marvel cinematic film so far? Captain America 2. Captain America the Winter Soldier. Why? Well, I mean, I, it's the, I just think it's just the most fun I've had watching one of the movies by far, while also being like dramatically fantastic and ethnically conceived way. I get that. I do get that. What about, what about you, Tom? In my opinion, it's a draw between Winter Soldier and the Avengers, which I'm sure Ian would love. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Ian, Ian, is, Ian is infamously online a... Well, are you, are you a hater of the Avengers, Ian? I don't know. Is that the, is that the best word, or is, it, is that a bit too much? I think what it does, it does to a decent standard. It's not one particularly wanted to watch. I think it's got more people who love the Avengers. I mean, I, I, I'm with, I'm with Tom. If I'm honest, I think, I think it's the Avengers for me as well. I think more people did love it than not love it. But what, why, why would you say the Avengers, Tom? After I think had the right 
mix of action with character stuff and um, technical turn, that character stuff. Mm. I just think it, it used the character that had on the whole well. There were a couple of occasions where they maybe could have used the meta, but I just think, I know it was just really fun to watch. Mm. Yeah. It, it, it did feel fun, didn't it? It did feel like it, you could tell that they were having fun and Joss Whedon was having fun and that came out on the screen. I think, I think actually, to an extent, the same can be said for The Winter Soldier. Because for me, The Winter Soldier is the second best um, Marvel film that I've seen, certainly of that, that universe. So I, I, I understand, Ian, why you've picked that, because that, I think that was great. So I think, you know, the, the best ones are the ones where the love of what they're doing seems to leap out the screen, really. But yeah, I just thought I'd start by asking you both your favourites, so we can put into... Well, I might ask you what your least favourites are later, but we can just put into context where you are on the spectrum of what kind of Marvels you like. And you what know, kind I just want to say, the Avengers is not my least favourite. There's some really bad Marvel movies that probably haven't been publicised very much. Like, the Doctor Strange one from the 70s is so awful. <laughs> well, it's, it's funny you should say that, because <laughs> that's, that's my next... That is my next point, right? I, I'm gonna, and that's a great segue. So thank you, you've helped me there. Because obviously, before we had the X Men series, the Spider Man series, things like that, they were doing Marvel films or television films mainly back in the day, and that that those are the ones that are the least well known. I, I've, I'll rattle a few off actually. Live action films. There was a 1944 Captain America serial, which was, yeah, which was, Marvel wasn't even known as Marvel then, it was called Timely Comics. And then there was a 1989 The Punisher, director video, and a 1990 Captain America, which was again director video in the US, and then finally a Fantastic Four that was unreleased. This was before the first one, which was Blade, technically was Blade, 1998, but that was the first big Marvel film technically that was released before we had the the real comic book renaissance start have any of you any, either of you ever seen any any of those old ones um, yeah i've seen doctor strange i've seen the 1989 punisher oh, i've seen that terrible fantastic movie <laughs> oh no how bad how bad were they you know really how bad the punisher was actually really good i mean not based on comic much but it was really really fun to watch mm. um, Doctor Strange um, about the first time starts seducing Nurse to like all music and just sort of start laughing and just can't <laughs> stop this over <laughs> <laughs> yeah because that's um, from what I can see that was 1978 that was and it was a pilot episode for an unproduced series uh, Doctor Strange series and obviously Doctor Strange he's, he's over the next like maybe four or five years we're going to have a massive Doctor Strange film more than likely so that he'll be a much more well-known character once once Marvel deal with him but there, was some, there were a few other television films as well 1979 there was there was two Captain Americas Captain America and Captain America 2 Death Too Soon which which sounds brilliant I'm so that... angry about Captain America I watched that one it's just the worst adaptation of anything I've ever seen in my life. Well, Death Too Soon sounds like the subtitle of a Steven Seagal or a Chuck Norris film, doesn't it? Or something yeah. like that. <laughs> it's, it's terrible. I mean, Tom, I, I think you should definitely watch that 1979 Captain America just to see what you should never do with Captain America, which is 
have him driving a van for half an hour doing nothing super. <laughs> <laughs> I'll have to watch it then. It's so so rare. Well, Tom, it's now time to delete that scene from uh, your show of Captain America driving a, a white van around. Yeah. Um, <sighs> yeah. So I know I know that was your favourite scene of uh, of your series. But it's got to go, mate. It really was. It really was. You know, Thirty whole pages, just him driving and driving. You know what's not to love about that? Getting stuck in a traffic jam. You know. Yeah. Brilliant. That's the episode where uh, he comes to London. Obviously. Um, yes. <laughs> I've just finished that one. Yeah. Good. Excellent. Yeah. But <laughs> after that, there was um, a bunch of Incredible Hulk. TV series uh, t- revival attempts of the old uh, TV series there was The Incredible Hulk Returns The Trial of the Incredible Hulk and The Death of the Incredible Hulk they were all the late 80s Ian have you seen any of those? I've got the trial one with Daredevil somewhere but I haven't actually watched it <laughs> you haven't, haven't been brave it's enough terrible <laughs> anyway, I don't want to see Daredevil suffering more than he really has to be honest yeah. <laughs> yeah famously I think the most possibly the most famous one of all of these on the TV side was the Nick Fury Agent of Shield 1998 pilot episode with David Hasselhoff <laughs> as Nick Fury <laughs> which I I have actually seen uh, bits of and oh, yeah it's it's ridiculous <laughs> I mean that's in keeping Nick Fury from the 70s so in some ways it is a faithful adaptation just mm. with the wrong actor like yeah. 20 years too late. Yeah, yeah, exactly, exactly. It's just uh, it, imagine if they'd have actually made the series with Hasselhoff <laughs> as as Nick Fury. It makes you wonder if they'd ever got to the point where anyone would take anything Marvel seriously ever again, and they would be able to do what they do today. <laughs> really, it's terrifying. It's a terrifying thought. Tom, have you ever seen Hasselhoff in that in that role? I haven't. I haven't. I've kind of avoided it. I've heard of it, but I thought, you know, I don't want to taint my mind by watching it. <laughs> you don't want to imagine that well-known Baywatch Marvel hybrid, which everyone obviously has been waiting for all their life. Yeah. 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 <laughs> but it's interesting, I think, how obviously none of these, probably because they were fairly cheap, you know, and 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 quite low rent, that they never got any kind of traction and people never discovered Marvel before because it's fair to say I mean I, I count myself in this Yeah, I mean you guys know I'm not a big comic book guy I've read very few comics to be honest but I love superhero movies I love comic book movies on the screen and that's really how I've discovered all these characters and I think there's a lot of people like me who have discovered Marvel through the movies and I know you both have been reading comics a long time do you think that on the whole they do the comics justice really I think what always gets me about the superhero movies and the people that watch them is when they complain that um, stuff in the, in the movie the adaptions is different and I think you need to look at them as they're not literally just like the comics on screen they're to exist kind of beside the comics and mm. take stuff from them and then kind of do their own twist because I think if you were just watching like what was on the page on the screen I think you'd get a bit boring so I think that a lot of them are actually faithful and rightly so I think you kind of need the original spin to bring them onto the screen I mean what you see on the page isn't always going to work on the screen like the brightly coloured spandex and stuff with the X-Men doesn't work on screen so um, I think on the whole like the movies have kind of 
opened it up to people who probably wouldn't read comics in the first place. So I think that's kind of what's so good about having the movies there. It's interesting yeah. you should mention the spandex there, actually, because I, I watched X-Men a few days ago because I'm, I'm starting re-watching them all. And one of the comments was made that they considered using the yellow spandex and then they did think to get the tone what we, we want we can't use the spandex because it's just too gaudy it's too in your face and they, they ended up making a joke about it in the film just to reference the fact that that spandex was the original costume so to comic book fans the kind of black and blue kind of you know form fitting thing that we see in the films obviously isn't the X-Men that they know or someone like you Ian you know who's read this stuff you wouldn't know that's not what it is to you is it? I've got to be honest I think that that leather works much better in the movie than spandex would because they're not in movies the X-Men aren't superheroes they're not like progressively stopping crime like they stop Magneto they don't go out and break up muggins so mm. they don't and also I think that what Tom was saying makes a lot of sense because it's things like when I watch the Avengers I'm not a huge fan of it but in terms of the whole that they've got in that is by far the best of any medium TV comics animated I've ever seen like in Iron Man same thing so I think the movies in some ways do a much better job of compartmentalising the characters down to a to do a very slim description it's like if you said to someone this is what Iron Man is from a movie you could do it in one line you know we'd mm. go yep I've got that whereas the comic books you'd have to take a long time trying to explain why he suddenly can control anything metal with his mind so uh, yeah I think the movies do a far smarter job of hooking people who wouldn't normally watch them into watching them whereas the comics don't do a very good job getting new people to read them because they're so dense well that that's one thing that I've always wondered as somebody who as I say doesn't really read comics can, can you re- and can you really adapt a comic as written in a comic for the cinema screen because I mean a classic example of when this topic was really discussed was when Heroes was on television and Heroes famously for a lot of people went off the rails because they they did by all accounts try and make it like a comic book on screen you know they tried to do that kind of format and it caused a little I know there were some people who loved Heroes but there was there were, there was some consternation among certain people that they couldn't translate it into that format. So do you think really a comic can't in a way be adapted? Or do you think that it's just the case that you've got to you've got to do the tweaks, you've got to ad- adapt and do things differently? I mean, I think heroes can say it's best when it's ripping off X-Men, to be honest. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Basically shamelessly ripping off every X-Men story ever made. And mm. When it came up with his own stuff, it was terrible. <laughs> yeah. I would I would say that when you put it onto the screen, you do need to make those tweaks. Because I mean, if you take like the the comic that that Eddie can anyway to adapt, like in the case of X Men: Last Stand, they took the Dark Phoenix saga and Days of Future Past took the Days of Future Past saga, and those comics are like really quite dated now. So you'd need to update them anyway. And even Winter Soldier's a fair bit older and wouldn't fit into the universe they built. So I think there are a lot of like you take a lot of that story but you do need to fill it with a lot more with a lot of new stuff for people who have read the comics so that there's something fresh for them as well 
as well as making it you know work for the movie series it's it's kind of trying to uh, I suppose it's a usual thing it's appeasing both camps isn't it really it's giving it's giving comic book readers something that they are going to love that they've always wanted to see unfold and it's giving a way in for new people like me who will fall in love with the characters in the world but not but for whatever reason don't want to read all the comics so yeah I suppose it's it's tricky though isn't it a tricky balance and they don't all get it right do they <laughs> you know in fairness which leads me on to talking about really where where it all began because obviously we've had all these old you know translations and things like that that have had very little money but it was really only Blade in, as, as I previously mentioned Blade in 1998 where the money started coming in and they started actually putting cash down and really going for this and that obviously was the beginning of the birth of the Marvel Studios production house but at the beginning yeah it was Blade and then really the two, the, the one of the, the big there were two big franchises X-Men the, we'll talk about the X-Men franchise a bit later but Spider-Man was the, was the big one wasn't it really the Sam Raimi Spider-Man trilogy was the one that I think that really started to put Marvel especially on the map weren't they um, yeah, yeah, definitely. <laughs> why do you th- why do you think that is? I mean, what why what what did what did Spider apart from the fact he had a lot of money? What was it about Spider Man? Of course, Spider Man ended up being produced not by Marvel Studios, but it's a Marvel property. What do you think? What the key was with the Spider Man trilogy that um, that, that struck a chord? I I think that it's um it's because of the character as well. Like the character was always a popular comic character but then if you look at Peter Parker himself he's quite a relatable character in his essence like he's the guy who's always overlooked and doesn't really stand out mm. so I think when you take a character like that who a lot of people can relate to you know make him super and I mean the first movie itself wasn't very complicated it had quite a simple plot for a superhero movie especially in comparison to later movies and I think it was that kind of mix of a, of a good character a plot that wasn't, you know, overly complicated. And it was big in a way that a lot of the earlier production, earlier superhero productions weren't. So I think that's why a lot it appealed to a lot of people and why it started its own trilogy. Mm. Even though that trilogy is is considered a mixed bag now, isn't it, really, in terms of, you know, the, 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 the wave of general opinion seems to say Spider-Man 2, Spider-Man good, Spider-Man 2, really good, Spider-Man 3 terrible <laughs> yeah which yeah i mean i would subscribe to that i would i would agree but i know it's not the case for everybody the people you know there are there are spider-man 3 apologists out there and for what for better or worse it made it made good money and it it continued the you know the trend of people seeing these as big event pictures really mm-hmm. and I, I think without that spider-man trilogy in part we wouldn't be where we are today would we no, definitely not. I think that, but I think Spider-Man 3's case, of, the idea's fantastic. It's just like, it's just too big. Mm. I mean, uh, if you narrow it down to Peter versus Harry, or Peter versus Sandman, it's a great two-hour movie, but they throw Venom in for some reason, despite he doesn't do anything, mm. and he just overcomplicate it. I mean, you talk about too many villains, that one had, too many, too many. And is it? Is that? A set? I haven't seen Amazing Spider-Man two yet, but I've heard a lot of people say it's got the same problem. It throws too many villains at the screen, and it's hard to really have anything a particularly good story. Well, I, I, I would say, as someone who has seen it, 
I would say that it doesn't quite do that in the in the way that Spider-Man Three does. It, I mean, it's got it technically does have three villains, but one of them is in it for five minutes for a start. Whereas in Spider-Man Three, they were all in it a lot, and you did get the feeling of, well, hang on a minute, who's the who's the bad guy? You do know who the bad guy is really in Spider-Man Two. The only thing is that by the end, a bigger bad guy has swooped in and starts stealing the limelight. Really, that's that's all it is. It's, it is a different. It is a different approach, and for all I, I personally feel Amazing Spider-Man 2 is a very mixed bag, I think it's far better than Spider-Man 3 in how it handles villains. Tom, you've seen it, haven't you? Yes, I what, have. What would you think? Um, I definitely agree with you. I think that um, it handles the villains a lot better than Spider-Man 3 did. Mm. And personally, I actually really liked um, Amazing Spider-Man 2, and I, think, I don't think the villain situation is really a problem. I think they... All three of the villains had different intentions and their, their relationship to Spider-Man was very different and that made like the showdowns quite different. Mm. But I can see why some people like view it as a fairly mixed bag. Personally, I actually really liked it. I don't think it was as good as the first movie, but I still think it's quite a good, a really quite a good superhero movie, yeah. Mm. I, I agree. I think, I think the first Amazing Spider-Man is the is the best of those two, and I, I, I personally feel the Amazing Spider-Man is the second best of all of them, all five. <laughs> now. And I would I would disagree that I would say the Amazing Spider-Man is the best Spider-Man film. Hmm. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> well, you, yeah, but you won't be on your own. I think I think there'd be a lot of people who'd put Amazing Spider-Man and Spider-Man Two at the top and flip them around at various points. Really, a lot a lot of people, but it's it's because they're very. That you know they're so different tonally, and mm. but both of these these different uh, well, I mean it will be a trilogy, the Amazing Spider-Man trilogy. But tonally, they they have got a lot of differences. Although one of the one of the reasons that I disliked Spider-Man Two, more, the Amazing Spider-Man Two more, was because it felt more like a Raimi film, and I don't feel that apart from Spider-Man. The irony is Spider-Man Two didn't feel as Raimi as the others, and the Amazing Spider-Man Two felt as Raimi. As Spider Man and Spider Man Three, <laughs> for me anyway, and I think that's why <laughs> it didn't it didn't do it for me fully. But I think that the tone is a big thing because those Spider Man films they had that balance of the the over the top comic book silliness, but also the fact that you really were invested in Peter Parker and the character. And I think that's I'd say that is the big the big key to why comic book films have really developed and grown, isn't it? Because it's not... You can put all the, 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 the silliness and the gloss and the, and the you know the, everything up on the screen, but you've got, to, you've got to feel the characters, haven't you? And you've got to feel the performances and things like that. In that regard, I don't get why people read Spider-Man 2, apart from Alfred Molina's Doctor Octopus. Like, Kirsten Dunst in that movie is so unlikable and scary. Mm. It's a bit where she runs out of J. John James's son in a wedding dress while it's like lens flaring off her face. She's smiling and I'm like, what a bitch. <laughs> I mean, it's just, that's, that's actually what I like more about Amazing Spider-Man is Emma Stone as Gwen Stacy is just mm. like so much better at that role than the comic book character. Yeah. Could yeah. possibly be to the point where I, I yeah, I, I was hesitant with some of the things I heard about Spider Man, the Amazing Spider Man 2, because she's far too good to sort of not 
been these movies for like five to ten years. I mean, mm. she's just outstanding as far as I'm concerned. Mm. I, I I entirely agree. But it's 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 interesting how yeah, and I think I think that's another thing. The, the characters, you know, one of the one of the big things I think people have said about Amazing Spider-Man one and two is that you feel the relationship between Peter and Gwen fantastically, and for me, it's the best thing about both of those films. You know, they you can tell they're an off-screen couple as well. They have the amazing chemistry, <laughs> pardon the pun, but they do. They have amazing chemistry, yeah. and and that wasn't for me. That wasn't there in the in the original Spider-Man trilogy, but it's got such a a following it made such a lot of money and it made such a, an impact that it led to a great deal of of, of what followed and th- there, was, there was a period though wasn't there really where we got a lot of overblown you know fairly silly um, blockbusters didn't we you know there were things like the, the Fantastic Four films and Ghost Rider and and X-Men Origins and things like that and they were oh, yeah and, and they just they felt very like they were taking all the Spider-Man silliness, but they had no. For me, they had no tether. They had no emotional connection. I don't know. What do you guys feel that or? I think apart from Jane Foster and Thor's complete lack of chemistry, I think Marvel's cinematic ones have just done such a good job of relationships. Mm. Yeah. I mean, Peggy Carter and Captain America was fantastic. I mean, Tony Stark and Pepper Potts is just even better, to be honest. So, yeah, I think they've done a much better job with relationships now. Because mm. it, fe- it felt like with those, you know, your Fantastic Fours and things like that, and, and it felt like it was just a lot of stuff going on. I suppose what I'm, I suppose what I'm saying is, were they too comic book? You know, were they, were they, were they too much in the, in the spectrum of, you know, it's, it's over the top, it's overblown, it is like a, an art, a, a splattering of art on the screen... Or, you know, is that is that what it was? I don't know. Well, I've only seen the first Fantastic One, Fantastic Four movie. That should yeah. have been so hard to say. Um, <laughs> once. And I remember really liking it, but it came out in, like, 2004, didn't it? Mm, something yeah, like something like that, yeah. So I was 10 years old, <laughs> and that's my defence for liking it. But I do remember it being very comic booky. I don't know, I think um, those kind of films, they appeal more to... 10 year olds mm. which I think is why I liked it so much but when you're when you're older and you're looking back at these films you think wow this actually was like really bad mm. but I think by making those films too comic booky, they are kind of limiting the audience of who's actually going to like it whereas the Marvel Cinematic Universe films have done a better job of aiming them towards everyone really than just you know making them too silly and limiting who's actually going to enjoy them well it's interesting because that, that yeah I think you're absolutely right it's interesting that before the Marvel Cinematic Universe kind of tethered it all together for the most part you had kind of different levels of, of Marvel films so there was there was the the, the the silly Fantastic Four kind that were more geared towards as you say 10 year olds little kids you had then the opposite end of the spectrum, your blades and your punishers that were aimed much more at grown-ups and more bloody and violent. I mean, the Blade films are, you know, carnage and blood everywhere, especially Blade 2, you know. And that, so they're, you know, completely on the other end of the spectrum. But then in the middle, you had things that... Ha- that it was that Things like Daredevil and Hulk 
the first Hulk, the Ang Lee Hulk, that, that were trying to be, I think, what the Marvel Cinematic Universe ended up being, but they didn't get the formula right, I don't think. I mean, Ian, what, Daredevil's a big one for you, isn't it? Because you're, you're a big Daredevil guy. I mean, what, what, what did you think of that film, the Ben Affleck film? I think it'll work much better as a TV show. Yeah. I think that's just Daredevil in general. He's, he's a bit like Slash and Arrow in that he's got so many stories and that doing a two-hour movie about them doesn't really work. Mm. It's He's not about action set pieces. He's very much a character scene sort of character, like very slow, dramatic, four or five, six episode plots combining from one jump on payoff rather than hey let's have Ben Affleck and Jennifer Garner piss about and swings for minutes <laughs> yeah yeah I've seen I've seen it and it was it felt like it was it was trying to aim at a certain level and in a different way to Ang Lee's Hulk but it just it just didn't quite have all the components and I, I, I to this I don't know why I mean I, I really don't know why that is and it's, you could say the same about the Hulk film, you know, because the Hulk film really tried to be more than just a big, silly, whiz-bang blockbuster. Because Ang Lee, obviously, is a very art house, you know, kind of director. You know, he, all, he, he knows how to direct action, but it's very, very quiet and, you know, drama-driven. But then you've got things like the that well... In fact, probably one of the most well-known moments where Hulk's out in the desert and he gets the tank and he just flings it round and throws it at the army. That's, just, that's brilliant. You know, it's just like... There was nothing that there was nothing that good in The Incredible Hulk, the second one. So it that felt like it was almost there, that Angley Hulk. I, I think it's a flawed masterpiece because there are parts in it which are as good as any comic book movie I've seen. Mm. And then those parts that really aren't very good. Like the entire ending where I still to this day do not understand how he beats his dad. Like, yeah. like I have no one's he absorbed he uses some sort of materials his dad becomes cardboard or something. But mm. I, I just don't understand what happens in the last ten minutes of that movie. <laughs> yeah, not very not well thought thought through fully, no. yeah. Yeah. <laughs> and that's and that's the thing, you know, that's I think why when we did finally get to the actual Marvel Cinematic Universe, by then, they had managed to balance the thinking everything through and getting the characterization and the and the plots right, kind of knowing that they were going to tether into the same world. I mean, it, it, it's not a complete success. I mean, I, 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 love, I love what they've done over the last six years so far, by and large. But I think that they, you know, to say that they've got everything right is isn't true really but I think on the whole they've pretty much they've pretty much got there you know yeah. from, from the beginning I mean I don't know what you guys think I mean Tom what do you think do you think from I mean Iron Man was really the one that started it do you think since then it's you know it's developed it's grown in a good way by and large I think it started strong with Iron Man but then I mean the next two films like Incredible Hulk and Iron Man 2 I'd say are not great mm. But I think from it really kind of hit its stride with Thor and Captain America, the first Avenger. And I think since then, since Avengers, especially, it's kind of really kicked in and become like unmissable cinema to the point where everyone's talking about it, everyone wants to see it. And I think it was Iron Man that started it off, and I think maybe that little stumble could have thrown people up a bit. I know I didn't see... I saw Iron Man in the cinema and I didn't see any of the four others until the Avengers. Mm. I mean, I saw right before Avengers, I watched Thor and Captain America 
because I was curious mm. and I've never actually seen anything with their characters before but I think it really became a big big thing with the Avengers and since then it's every single release has kind of been this huge deal do you think maybe that the secret to it because arguably you know it's it, that this universe is the biggest comic book success ever in film so far do you, do you think that it's because it is a shared, tethered universe and people know that it's all building? Obviously, it built to the Avengers and now it's building back up to the next Avengers and things like that. Do you think it's because people know that it is an interconnected web and it's not going to be falling into the trap of, oh, okay, we'll reboot it again in a few years or we'll, you know, we'll retell that story, which is a problem that DC have right now in many ways. Do you feel, do you feel that's yeah. what it is? I think even me, who doesn't particularly like the Avengers or Iron Man 3 or 4 or 2, we're agreeing that what they've done is just so fantastic in like every conceivable way. I mean, they've now basically started their own, they have their own comic book movie side project at this point. DC's not, like, I love DC comics, but they're not even in the same game at the moment. Mm. And like, you know, you, you the worst Marvel movie is at least a consistent product in line with all the other ones. With Man of Steel, you were watching like, how are you going to bring Batman into this? I mean, I know they're going to, but it's just a joyless, soul-sucking, awful, in every possible way, attempt to restart a franchise. I mean, you watch Batman too. He's perfect in terms of how they get character. And you watch Superman, so like, oh man, I would save my dad, but people might see me, and I don't want people to see me. And it's like, you, you have super speed. Mm. How are you not saving your dad? And he's just like, <laughs> don't don't save me, boy. Don't, <laughs> don't let people see who you are. And it's like, oh my God, why are you doing this? Yeah. <laughs> It's uh, it's interesting, Tom. You you say you say you like Man of Steel. Now uh, I know we're diverting into DC, but there is a, there is a point to this. I'm going to get to what what is it what is it about Man of Steel that that you defend? In, in just out of curiosity, I'm not even really sure why I liked it. I <laughs> went in, like really enjoyed it. It was you didn't really have to think that much, so it was kind of just <laughs> <laughs> you go in, you know. There's um some really attractive lead actors in this film, their explosions and their superheroes. And then I came out and I was entertained, which is what a film should do. Mm. So it is a bit mindless and I'm not a DC person. I've never ever read a DC comic or watched any of the shows or anything. So beside what was Superman Returns? Is that the 2006 one? Yeah. 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 Beside that, this was the only DC thing I've ever watched. So, um, in comparison to Superman Returns, I think it was a fucking masterpiece. I think Tom was the target audience for Man of Steel, I really do. Yeah. Target <laughs> audience I mean, of one. I, mean, that's a, I don't mean that's a criticism, Tom. I mean that's a compliment because. I think they shouldn't be aiming at the people who are big fans of comic books. I think they should be aiming at people who are, who will actually pay money to see these movies. Like people like me would not have got Man of Steel to six hundred ninety million dollars. <laughs> so yeah, I think I'm, I'm actually really pleased and liked it because you know it means hopefully that you're going to see Batman vs Superman eventually 
Superman might smile on screen again in some. <laughs> well, the crew. <laughs> they make enough movies. He has to at some point. So the crucial thing there, and that that's an interesting thing you said, Ian. You said they didn't make Man of Steel for me because I'm a fan. Now, Marvel fans obviously are watching this cinematic universe, but is the reason that where Man of Steel in many people's eyes failed, and where um, some of these DC films, the, the, the Christopher Nolan Batman's aside but for most people but why Man of Steel and some of these like Green Lantern and things like that aren't working for a lot of people is it because the Marvel Cinematic Universe has managed to get that alchemy right of the newbies like me like it right but it also appeals to the Marvel guys who have been waiting for it all their life whereas obviously with Man of Steel it didn't do that for everybody is, is, that, is that consistency is that Level the reason that it's 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 capturing so many people. Well, I think it's also Marvel. I think Marvel's genius is they also simplify it, and that's not an insult. It's more like they they, they pare it down, like Chris Nolan did with Batman, where it's sort of like to the absolute nature of the character, and then they make the movie. Where Man still was, yeah, um, we don't really want to have Superman being happy and cheerful, so we're going to make him a bit more introspective and I think where Marvel succeeds is as Tom said their movies generally are just they they might have good stories and good characters but they're just fun like the Avengers for all my criticisms like everyone I've talked to mostly has come out of comments like it was just a fun movie I enjoyed watching these characters hang out for two and a half hours and I'm like Marvel's figured out you know it doesn't have to be more complex than we get these characters, we give them to whips, we give them to... Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake and more special treats come celebrate mother's day at whole foods market millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from noom like evan who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds salads generally for most people are the easy button right for me that wasn't an option i never really was a salad guy that's just not who i am but noom worked for me get your personalized plan today at noom.com Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health Right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Action sequences, that's it. Because the other thing as well is that to an extent, I would say that the DC comic world, is, if anything, is more well-known to an extent in the sense that, you know, all of these Avengers characters... Ten years ago, I I wouldn't be able to tell you who Thor was or Black Widow 
or you know, I, I knew who the Hulk, I knew who the Hulk was. I vaguely knew who Iron Man was. Yeah, Black you'll Widow. See who, you'll see who who Spider Man was. Yeah, yeah, sure. Yeah, the I, thing. they're the big ones. Yeah, Captain America was sort of. But not then, really, well, yeah, sort of Captain America. Seamless. Captain America, I vaguely knew as well. Somebody, but but oh. you know, I grew up having barely ever read a comic of them, but I grew up knew, knowing and loving Superman and Batman and the Joker and all of these characters and you know all these characters in that DC world. And so, if anything, I think to people who aren't into comic books, DC is the bigger comic, is the more well-known comic book world. So it's strange how Marvel have been the ones who've made the biggest success. And now, arguably, thanks to the movies, Captain America, Iron Man, Thor are as big to some extent as Batman and Superman. They're, they're as well to a, a whole generation of young young kids, especially. They're going to be as well known now yeah. and iconic. So. To to do that is a is a such a, a an ex, a success, you know, and such an achievement really in such a short space of time as well. I don't know if you guys agree with that. I I, I agree. Um, before like Iron Man came out, I'd never heard of Iron Man. Even before Captain America came out, I'd only like briefly heard of him. I'd never really paid him any attention. He was just a dumb guy with a shield. <laughs> um, <laughs> funny how that worked out. Uh, <laughs> yeah. Mm. <laughs> And like the Superman and Batman were the superheroes that you you kind of knew. Like I never personally paid them much attention either. X Men was always my thing when I was growing mm. up. But I'd say now the Marvel films have kind of made these superheroes. You know, they bumped like the B and C listers up to A list. Yeah. Now even even Black Widow and Hawkeye, like the two in the MCU that are kind of sidelined a lot. Even Hawkeye has kind of like been bumped up to seal B list, and hopefully when Black Widow gets her own bloody film, she will be more recognised as well because I think she's getting there with Winter Soldier, you know, being the co-lead. But I think I think that's what I want to see next. I want to see Marvel bump one of the female characters up to that A list, like they've done with so many male characters already. Mm. Um, Apparently, Black Widow. What I heard was she's like the joint lead in Avengers two, or maybe not joint lead, but she gets she's going to be quite a big character in it. So you might they might just use that and then say, oh yes, coincidentally, Black Widow's coming out in two thousand seventeen, and it's like, yay, a Black Widow movie before Wonder Woman. (laughs) Yeah, it's more than likely going to be, or it could be, Mm. and it's it is remarkable. That is really remarkable. But you, you mentioning the X-Men was your favourite, Tom, neatly gets us on to the, the, other, the other big side of, of, of the, the, the instigation of, of, all, of all this comic book stuff, because it's arguably, and obviously we're on the verge of Days of Future Past about to be released, but arguably the X-Men franchise has, pl- has played as big a part as your Spider-Man franchise in setting up tonally this 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 opening door of the comic book world i mean x-men the first x-men was 2000 that was the first one that was before sam raimi's spider-man and that, that that was only the second marvel movie to have a big budget and to and to come out and to do all this now i mean that really it's really x-men that set the tone isn't it in a way in many ways for what was to come i agree with that i think where x-men succeeded was Basically, as good as the first movie was, casting Patrick Stewart and McKellen, after that, mm. the movie just worked. I mean, it was just 
their first confrontation in that movie, you just relaxed and thought, yeah, you know, this is going to be a very, very good movie. Even Ethanus is awful. Just seeing these two actors square off for like 90 minutes. Yeah. Well, I was, I was six when the first one came out, so I don't exactly remember that, but I remember when X-Men 2 came out, I went to see it with a bunch of my school friends. And I remember the reason we all went to see it is because we'd all kind of grown up watching the Fox Kiss um, X-Men cartoon. And that was why, like, for my entire group, and I'm pretty sure for, like, everyone of my age at that time, we'd grown up with that and the Spider-Man cartoon series. So those were kind of, those were the heroes that we knew and that we wanted to see in, on, in the cinema. So, like, when we saw when we saw those films, it was kind of like the big event because it was kind of moving them up from just cartoon heroes to people, like, to live-action heroes. And that was why it was, like, kind of so exciting for us and why why we kind of, that whole generation got into superhero films. I think because they were what we'd grown up with and then suddenly it was even bigger and even better than what we already knew. So that's why X-Men was, was always, like, my kind of thing when I was growing up, yeah. Especially that. Does that make you feel really old, Tony? Because I remember seeing X Men Two yeah. in a cinema with a can of beer. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> it's always still like, oh yes, I was, I was eight years old when I saw it. And I was like, Jesus Christ, I was eighteen when I saw it. I, I'm, I'm, I know, same here. I'm reminded of that line in, uh, I think it's Star Trek Generations, where Captain Kirk turns around to Picard and says, I was flying around the galaxy when your grandfather was in diapers. I'm reminded of that. That's how I feel talking to Tom. Sorry. <laughs> no, it's true. I saw, I saw the first X-Men. I think I saw it at the cinema, actually, as well. And it was... Uh, I, I mean, I, I still like it even to this day. I, th- I think it's a bit too short, and I think it, it feels more like a trailer for everything else to come for the second film in a way. But I think it was, I think it really blended everything together really nicely and managed to be quite fun and a little bit frolicky at times while being having a certain gravitas to it. And I think you're right, when, Ian, when you say it was about Patrick Stewart and Ian McKellen being cast because that that made a big that big difference. It added that Shakespearean feel almost to the whole thing and that's something I think that a lot of the comic book world took on and that's why they've they often get in actors don't they who are not traditionally cheesy and things like that to actually play these I mean like Anthony Hopkins in Thor you know to really he's add so that he's so awful well, yeah, yeah but he's but he's got he's a great actor but he's I mean he's, he just every time I watch Thor and I see Anthony Hopkins and he's barking like a dog I just think he does not no, he doesn't know. That's the thing with Anthony Hopkins now. He's given up. He's not bothered. I mean, if you just watch Noah for proof of that. Noah, he's just turned up on set and gone, I'm going to be Anthony Hopkins today, but I'm going to have a beard. He's just, he's brilliant. He just doesn't care. So it's like, but at the same time... It just makes me so angry. Sorry to interrupt you. That Brian Blessed did not play Odin before because they got Anthony Hopkins. I'm like, Brian Blessed not care either but at least he would make a funny job of it Thor's alive yeah it's true exactly. yeah it's true really but you know it, it, I think it triggered I think without that kind of X-Men gravitas between those two I don't think you would have you would have got it as maybe as much in, in comic books so I think it I think it really it really did a good job there in setting a lot of stuff up and then X2 really took that along didn't it I mean funnily enough I, I'm, I'm, a, I'm re-watching X2 tonight after we talk about this, actually, I've got that's on the plan, 
And I, I found, first time I ever watched, and I've watched it maybe twice. First time I ever watched X2, I found it to dragging, strangely. I found it dragged. It, it was my, li- I know, it was my least favourite X-Men film. But honestly, I genuinely, and, I, and I'm including what? X-Men 3 in that. I know. Least favourite? I know, I know. How dare you? I know. X-Men Origins Wolverine? No, actually, no, no, before? no. Actually, no. Sorry. Did this include The Last Stand? Yes, yeah, it does. Yeah, Tony, that's, that's it, pretty... Like, I know. Me and Tom, Discord and the Avengers, we're both like, seriously? Yeah. X-Men 2 is worse than X-Men 3? It doesn't, in, it doesn't include uh, Origins, Wolverine. That's that's terrible. That's, and I, I, do you know what? I genuinely believe that my opinion will change now. Now, years later, I honestly think I will watch X2 and I'll get a lot more out of it. And yeah, when I watch X3... Yeah. Yeah, I know. I, I honestly, I really do think that I will turn around and say, yeah... I was wrong first time around. I, I really do. I really, really do. I don't know what it was the first time around that really made me not feel it. Do you feel... Obviously, you two guys much more strongly believe the general consensus that that is the best X-Men film to date. What do you think? I think what's so great about X2 is that it has... It does have a really large cast and it kind of does an effective job, I'd say maybe apart from Cyclops, of giving all of those different heroes something to do. I mean, Storm, Jean, and Nightcrawler off at, at one bit, and then you've got Wolverine with um, Rogue and Iceman, and the amazing, amazing mansion fight scene, oh, which so I absolutely adore. And they go off there, and then you've got Xavier and Cyclops having been captured, and it's all spread out, and then it all comes together when Magneto and Mystique come in, yeah. And it just uses all of its parts so well, and it concludes really, really well. And I remember everyone when I went to see it in the cinema, everyone being like really shocked, but then really excited for the next one because it sets yeah. it up perfectly, and then the next one fucks everything up. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And also, you, you see, my favourite thing in almost any comic book movie is the opening investment too with Nightcrawler. Yeah, that is. I remember that seeing is really that in Simba, and I just. Yeah. My eyes were just bugging out. I can't, couldn't believe they pulled that off so perfectly. I mean, it's just it was amazing. Yeah, I, I, I remember that. I thought I, I always thought that was great. I, 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 yeah. I agree. And it's you say the, the the last stand obviously fucked it all up, and that's a big reason for that. Obviously, is because Brian Singer went off and did Superman Returns instead, and he fucked up. Yeah, well, yeah, well, <laughs> yeah, to, to an extent, yeah, and he, uh, and then he. Obviously, it's a decision he now regrets, which is the main reason that he's he's doing Days of Future Past in order to retcon X Men Three out of existence, which is which is his reason, really. I mean, well, I think that's what we'll find, you know. Um, so, what was so bad about X Men Three then? I think it's it's what you were saying about X Men, the first one. It it was a two hour, maybe two and quarter hour movie. Yeah took like an hour and 40 to finish so they just rushed through everything mm. uh, Jean decides for 20 minutes despite the fact that she's the most powerful mutant that's ever existed she's just been standing in the background while Magneto does things the, the US Army finally realises they shoot Magneto with plastic bullets he can't deflect them yeah <laughs> and Magneto's just like oh my god I can't believe I didn't think they might use plastic against me <laughs> I don't think it's good, but I think it is 
fun in a way. It's just after how good X Men Two was, I sort of expected more. And mm. this isn't bad. This is amusing, but like you know, I can see Beast jumping down the wires, and it's making me really depressed. <laughs> I'm just gonna quickly say the one thing I did enjoy about X Men Three was that they finally used Kitty Pride because like, she's yeah. such a great character, and they should have just brought her in. Earlier, and I'm glad they're using her again in Days of Future Past. Oh, but yeah, my main reason for hating The Last Stand goes all the way back to why I like the animated series so much and the games and the first two X-Men films, and that was because I really enjoyed the character of Rogue, and I know there's been a lot of people who don't like Anna Paquin's portrayal of her. She's great. But yeah, I don't when, get that either. Mm. But when I when I watched the first one, she's she Rogue and Wolverine are the characters that bring you into that universe, and then X Men Two kind of expands her role and puts her with Iceman, and then X Men Three just fucks everything up with her. They just they take all the all the fun that could have come out of the character that they have in like the animated series and the comics, where she becomes this confident confident woman with vulnerable with a vulnerable side, and with using her powers for you know something better and in X-Men 3 they just kind of throw her away and just they literally just turn her into the whiny love interest character and it just messes everything up and I think that's the one thing about Days of Future Past that I'm just a bit pissed off about because she was such a major character in the first two films and now in X-Men 3 she was basically just a whiny love interest and in Mm. this one they decided to cut most of her stuff out, yeah. and it's like she was a she was a big reason that a lot of a lot of people in my age watched those first two movies and liked them because she was the younger character. She was the one that we kind of liked because she was only a teenager, and I, I don't know. It just kind of feels like they're missing out. You know, there's a big story to tell with Rogue, and they're just missing out because they're focusing on Wolverine again. Yeah, <laughs> definitely. But she's such a great character. And I think the idea of taking people's powers, there was so much more they could have done with that. And then she's like, oh, no, don't want them anymore. Bye. Well, I'm, yeah, it's a wasted opportunity. Well, I'm, that could sum up X-Men 3 as a whole, I suppose. And that obviously was one of the big thinking between behind the fact that they went, right, okay, we need to, we need to rethink what we're doing. And that was the birth of First Class a few years later, which for me... I think First Class was really good on the whole. I, I really liked First Class, um, more than I actually expected I would, to be honest with you, because I was very dubious about not having, you know, all these characters played by, you know, Ian McKellen and, and you know, Halle Berry and all that. I know she's not in First Class, but you know what I mean? It's, it's uh, having a whole new X-Men. But it's, yeah, because I always like Halle Berry for reasons that are probably quite base. But it was just like... Uh, <laughs> um, <laughs> Yeah, but, she was great in Swordfish. Yeah, yes, she was very good in that. Very good. Um, two great reasons why she was good in Swordfish. But I just want to say I enjoyed her as Storm, but it may just be because you know that's what I grew up with. Yeah, yeah, um, yeah, yeah, yeah. Anyway, but um, but no, first class. I mean, what do we make of that one? Yeah, I thought it was really good. Yeah, I thought it was really good as well. <laughs> Except for um, Michael Fassbender's last thirty minutes, we. Decides he doesn't want to do a German accent, he turns Irish. <laughs> That's true. That is true, but, actually. But then, uh, in comic books, he does. Magneto has been has morphed between Gypsy and Jewish around them. So I suppose in their way, they were saying, 
There might be a bit of Irish in Yeah. Um, I think First Class definitely gets bonus points for kind of introducing Jennifer Lawrence to the mainstream. So, yes, definitely, definitely. <laughs> so that was, yeah, that was like the first one I saw her in. And I think that she's a really well-cast mystique, and that's why I'm so excited that her role in Days of Future Past has been expanded. Yeah. I think the younger cast they brought in for that, like I really enjoyed the fact that they use Havoc and they use Banshee. I mean, they, they aren't exactly A-list X-Men, but they brought them in, and I really liked what they did with them, and I just kind of wished that those, you know, those secondary players from First Class were in Days of Future Past, but it's already so crowded. Actually, Havoc uh, is, apparently. Oh, yeah, no, he's... But not much, he's, I don't think. So. Yeah, I don't think there's going to be room for much for any characters to do, apart from the main ones, but... All three. Hopefully, <laughs> yeah, don't get me started. <laughs> but hopefully, by the time Apocalypse rolls around in 2017, or whenever that is, you know, they'll kind of... They'll do a... Uh, like a real sequel to First Class and Moira McTaggart where does her character go that's what I want to know why is she not in Days of Future Past I feel bad for saying this Tom apparently Hugh Jackman's already been confirmed for X-Men they're shooting it back to back with Wolverine 3 this is apparently I mean they haven't confirmed it yet but I think uh, I think what you're going to find with Days of Future Past and I think the big the big factor is as I say they're, they're doing it partly to retcon X-Men 3 out of existence but another big reason I think is so they can they can have one continuity and they can just keep everything and build everything to a point where they could potentially introduce an X-Men saga that builds up to the present day and goes on and reintroduces Rogue and all of these characters potentially and and maybe even do the stories right it could even be that you get a new Wolverine one day Hugh Jackman I don't think will do more after these next two um, I think that will be it for him and then so I, I think the whole process of it I think Tom you will get in Apocalypse I think you will get more of McTaggart back I think you will I mean Gambit's supposed to be in it Channing Tatum's supposed to be in that possibly yeah. As you know so yeah. it's, you will get all this new this new group evolve around it and I, I, I for me even though I, I really like what they did with the first few X-Men films in general as a whole I think this reboot in in a sense this this Trek style, re, you know, new timeline, I think it will birth something even better. I really do, in the long run. Unfortunately, guys, much like last week with the Godzilla episode, the ending of my conversation with Ian and Tom had to be cut out due to bad reception on the Skype line, which you probably heard just starting to trickle in, actually, in that last moment I was talking. So. Unfortunately, we were almost at the end anyway, but I just want to thank Ian and Tom for both coming on and talking so well about Marvel. And without further ado, let's get on with the biggie. It's time to review X-Men Days of Future Past. So many battles waged over the years. And yet, none of them like this. Are we destined to destroy each other? Or can we change who we are and unite? Is the future truly set? Mutants, we now find ourselves on the edge of extinction. You'll need to go into the past to end this war before it ever begins. 
Okay, so X-Men Days of Future Past, as we talked about with Tom and Ian in the podcast, is a film that's been a long time, obviously, in the making, given it's Brian Singer coming back to the franchise that he started 15 years ago in the year 2000 with X-Men, and then went through to X2 with every intention of making a third film, even though at the time he didn't know what that third film was going to be, except obviously X2 set up the idea of the Dark Phoenix saga, which eventually was played out in X3, The Last Stand. Only Brian Singer, of course, wasn't around for that to happen, and Brett Ratner got his hands on it and made a poor film, and that's been polite. And, to be honest, hashed up a lot of what Singer had set up in those first two films. So it took then the reboot of First Class, especially after the critical derision that was aimed at X-Men, X-Men Origins Wolverine in 2009, which, again, kind of hashed up certain things and had nothing weighty to it. They then went in the new direction of First Class, with Matthew Vaughan, with Brian Singer producing, in order to reboot the franchise to an extent. And then the question was, well, what happens then? You know, you've got all these characters that we've seen now as young people. It works. You've got a really good cast. They've retooled certain relationships to fit, principally Mystique being as close to Professor X as she was Magneto in the original X-Men films, which was was not even hinted at in the, the, the original trilogy at all. And so there's a little bit of retconning going on. So what's the next step? You, you logically, everyone imagined that you would take these characters in the 60s and do another movie. You know, second class, I think, was the uh, the title sort of being bandied about. But obviously, when Brian Singer came back to do it, they went in the direction of making Days of Future Past, which is one of the most famous comics in the Marvel saga. Now, I'm not a comic book guy, as I said on this podcast, but I know enough to know about the big arcs and the big stories. And Days of Future Past, of course, is is this dystopian Terminator-esque story where there is there are these robotic creatures called the Sentinels in 10 or 15 years' time who were built to destroy mutants, to take out mutants, built by a fearful government who were afraid of what the mutants could do. And obviously that's the very core of the X-Men story. The allegories to all kinds of different you know, wars across history between two different groups of people, one of whom is afraid of the other one, or is suspicious of the other one. In this case, it's humankind against mutants, against this evolution of of the human race into these people having all these amazing powers. And X-Men has always been a parable for, you know, things like the Holocaust. I mean, that's the key thing with Magneto, obviously. You know, that goes back in, in his own personal backstory, the idea of the Holocaust. So there's a lot of underlying subtext with X-Men and and Days of Future Past kind of crystallises that idea and the Sentinels ultimately turn not only on mutants but on humanity in the end and they start to basically take control and they wipe out the world and they destroy most of the human race and there's only a few mutants left in the future so it's a cautionary tale in a way you know our own determination to destroy what what we're afraid of is what destroys us and in the comics the big story was that Kitty Pride, here played by Ellen Page, is sent back in time. Her consciousness is sent back in time in order to stop the Sentinels from being created and, and coming about and having to convince a younger Professor X in order to do that. And the X-Men are back in the time. But now, of course, you've got the interesting idea with Days of Future Past is that you can retool that story and, and tie both these film sagas together. The original Brian Singer trilogy with Patrick Stewart as the old Professor X and Ian McKellen as Magneto and Halle Berry and and all these guys and obviously Hugh Jackman and you can tie it in with the original 
and you can tie it in with the the original younger characters. So, you know, James McAvoy is a young Charles Xavier. Michael Fassbender is the young Eric Lensher, Magneto. Jennifer, Jennifer Lawrence as Mystique, you know, and, all, and all, these, all these people back in the day. And obviously, because Kitty Pride isn't a big character, it's not her that ultimately goes back in time. She, she's, she's one of the reasons that it's, allowed to, it's able to happen, but ultimately it's Wolverine who goes back in time. Because Hugh Jackman, obviously, Wolverine has been around and he's been looking the same for 100, 150 years, as X-Men Origins did crystallise in that he was born in around like, the early 18th, 19th century. So it makes very good narrative sense, actually, to send Wolverine back. I mean, the, the purists have been moaning about a couple of things, you know, A, that it's not Kitty Pride, and B, that, again, it makes Wolverine the lead. And that's missing the point entirely, you know. I mean, the, the big point, obviously, is that Wolverine is, is the biggest character in, in the X-Men saga. You, they, they've made a solo, two solo Wolverine films now, and the second film, The Wolverine, that preceded this, was, was really quite good, and it was, it was quite a hit. And there will be another Wolverine film in a couple of years. So there's no underestimating that these films are missing something when Wolverine isn't in them. And, and First Class got away with it pretty much. You know, he didn't really need to be in that story. And he obviously he was memorably in a cameo. But having him as, you know, the, the catalyst for this going back in time is really quite clever. Because it highlights the fact that Wolverine isn't actually the lead at all in this. And that, that's a big reason why Days of Future Past is really quite a good film. It's not about Wolverine. It's about Charles Xavier, ultimately. This whole story is about him because Wolverine has to go back in time in order to convince Charles that, of, the, of the threat of the, in, the, in the 1970s now of, this, of the Sentinels who are being created by Peter Dinklage who plays Bolivar Trask who's the scientist who creates the Sentinels based on the you know, fear of, of the war to come. And there's a, there's a lot of war parable in this. You know, with the, Vietnam, he's, he's casting a spectre over everything. The US is just coming out of that. You know, it's the Nixon administration, so everything's very murky and shifty. And it's a very different kind of tech film textually than First Class was. First Class kind of had that early 60s kind of hope about it, even though it was the Cuban Missile Crisis and there was a lot of, you know, Cold War tensions. It also had that, and, and it ended, obviously, on the divert, the divisions and everything like that. It also had that element of, if not campness, then certain colourfulness, you know, it had that Bond theme, feel texture to it. This doesn't. This is much more, this is much more your, your co political conspiracy thriller underneath you know, your parallax view kind of thing going on. A bit, kind of a bit like what Captain America was tapping into, the Winter Soldier, but obviously that was in a contemporary sense. This is set in the 70s. You know, Charles Xavier, James McAvoy has long hair, <laughs> you know, now, and he's he's a bit grungy. And one of the crucial things to this is that it, it's about the fact that, that Xavier can walk because he has this suppressant that, stops his mind powers working and as a result it means that he's let everything go to pot and he's he's lost his way basically you know this at the end of first class of course he'd set up the school for gifted young mutants and every and he was he was on his way to being the professor x we know he was in the wheelchair everything like that now he's not you know he's only got beast nicholas holt with with him and he obviously misses mystique and he's got a lot of things that he hasn't resolved and Wolverine has to play the mentor you like you like in the original X-Men films it was Patrick Stewart who was the mentor to Wolverine he was the one trying to help him understand his own past and, and take him forward and now it's reversed and that's one of the things that the old Professor X says to Wolverine you know you've got to guide me now because I was a very different man back then so you've got 
you've got all that going on and then it, it, the, the, the film moves with Xavier's journey in which he comes to understand his, his role as, as Wolverine convinces him you know that there is this threat that these sentinels are going to create this dark future and that obviously ties into Magneto and, and, and the, the, the story unfolds from there the crucial thing with, the, with Days of Future Past is this a lot of people have been talking it up as being you know the greatest comic book movie of years it's not it's, it's, a, it's a very good one and I, I am yet to be 100% sure if it's the best X-Men film I don't know X2 will take some beating now I've actually watched the X-Men films back as I, as I commented in, earlier in this podcast I wasn't sure that I loved, I loved X-Men too and I, and I had a lot going but I've since realised the error of my ways there and that it is a genuinely good really good film whether this is better than that it will take some time it will take a few viewings to you know to spit bed in it's perhaps certainly as good it's a very different film and what it's doing is it's, it's retooling the whole franchise but it can't make everything sync up. You know, one of, the, one of the big things with X-Men is the continuity is all to cock. You know, it's nothing like the Marvel Universe where everything is pretty much in sync and they have tracked it very carefully. This is one where everything is just this morass of alternate timelines. And that's why it, it felt very Terminator at times. You know, the whole dark future, which is very well done, of the Sentinels and this war where they're, they're basically losing and they're all about to be wiped out and it's very grim and dour. And then you've got the the central you know more colourfulness of the past in a way and it's it has that very foreboding feel to it and you really get the sense that not the, these these timelines aren't quite the same thing and and ultimately that that's what that's what is revealed without t- spoiling too much that x-men the x-men universe effectively works on multiple realities and multiple timelines and i remember the uh, as 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 the ending came along i was with friend and she she had no real idea what what well she kind of did but she kind of didn't understand how it kind of worked out at the end and i've had to since think it through and i've read some articles and things like that and it, it kind of does make sense but it does have that certain time travel logic in that it doesn't make any sense at all in a way but it kind of clears the board it clears the board it's brian singer clearing the board so they can move on into the already announced x-men apocalypse the next film with the original cat, with, with this new cast, the original earlier versions of the characters, and they can move on and go forward with it. And by and large, it feels like a, tran- a transitory film, but it, but a good one, and they're telling a good solid story. You know, sweeping out the old, bringing in the new. You know, not not everything quite works. In that, it, there are times when it does drag. There's a lot of scenes on on airplanes where they're kind of flying from one place to another and it does kind of go round itself a little bit sometimes trying to set certain things in motion Jennifer Lawrence oddly enough even though she's extremely crucial to the story Mystique is a very crucial part of the whole idea she oddly enough doesn't seem to get a massive amount to do and it's and it's strange there is character development for her but it's it doesn't seem to quite work it, it, she, she flits in and out of things and it's not it doesn't quite coalesce in the right way unfortunately but she's still very important and she still plays Mystique very well Michael Fassbender I would say he's on a par with McAvoy you know people will say Fassbender steals the show he's obviously great as Magneto and he sorted out the wobbly accent problem of the first film in that he sounded Irish half the time you know he doesn't have that anymore but McAvoy really is he's really good as Xavier he's better than last time in fact and he really charts the course of this man you know it, it's so it, it's got that it's got those good performances but there are characters that get lost in the in the mix especially the the earlier characters like you know storm and iceman and, and kitty pride and the fact rogue is bare he's hardly there and there's there are a lot of those guys in the future especially 
don't get really that much to do. There are smaller roles as well for Patrick Stewart and Ian McKellen, but what they do get is great, and they, they do have a couple of really nice scenes together. That, and it suffice to say, it will be the last time we see them in the roles, really, without giving too much away. So it was a nice swan song for them, really. But there are a lot of characters, there are a lot of characters, and not all of them get their day in the sun, really. But but the script tries. The script does try to service everybody, and it's well done. You know, it does have a lot of texture to it. It does have a lot of depth. It has some really, really good sequences. I mean, one of, one of the characters that steals the show is Quicksilver, and there'll be a lot of talk about him because he's going to have a bigger part in the next one. And he comes in, and, and there's a probably the standout scene of the film is, is a prison break where he, he just has so much fun with that. And he's, he's only in it for about 10, 15 minutes, but he almost steals the film, actually. You know, there, 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 is, there, is, there are some really nice sequences. And it, so overall, it, 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 is a very, it is a very good film. It's a very good comic book film, and I, I thoroughly enjoyed it. But I, think, I don't know if it will fully stand the test of time. I don't know if it can be called the best X-Men film, but it's certainly up there. It's, if it's not the best, it's the second best. And it's got a lot of... It, you, you, and you will probably need to see it a couple of times, really, to let it all soak in even though it has a lot of plot holes, a lot of continuity problems, but it, it, it can't help that because that's the nature of this franchise. So if you can look all past all that and you can just enjoy it for the ride it is and enjoy the characters and enjoy the, a pretty decent script, you'll, you, you will get something out of it. You really will. And I urge you to stay to the very end of the credits because there is a final scene in that that will blow your mind <laughs> because it sets up without giving too much away it sets up the next film kind of and it kind of hints towards where's the way that's going and it's a really 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 cool moment that had me in paroxysms of, of of geek glee so please please stick about and watch that on the big screen but yeah thankfully days of future past is one of the better blockbusters this year so far and it's not a classic but it does its job it does a very tricky job pretty damn well You'll need a new weapon for this war. Everything that happens now is in your hands. So that brings us to the end of this Marvel Black Hole Cinema special. Thank you for listening. Hopefully you've enjoyed me and the boys rambling about all things marvellous and the review of X-Men Days of Future Past, which I, as I say, I do recommend. I think you should go and see it. Check it out for yourself. Make your own mind up. I'll be back next week for a more traditional episode. We've had two specials on the bounce now, but uh, it's back to the uh, normal ones just for a bit. There are a few more specials to come soon I've got a couple of things in the works but beyond that then it's just business as usual there'll be reviews next week of some of the new films that are out so until then you can find us as usual on Twitter at Black Hole Cinema on Facebook if you type in Black Hole Cinema and at the home of our hosts www.bznetwork.co.uk for lots of fiction based goodness so please do go over so what you think about the show let me know what you think if it's any good if it's not the usual you know you know how this works by now if you're a listener 
please do feedback it's always really welcome in which case I'll say goodbye have a great week whatever you're doing I'm on half term I'm on holiday so I'm going to be watching as many films as I can around everything else and I hope whatever you watch and whatever you do you have a good one Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns.